Hello, and welcome to an episode, another episode of the latest Shiny podcast. Uh, this is Rob Hirschfeld flying solo. We have a great guest. Mike Kyle is joining us. And uh, Mike, you have officially graduated to friend of latest Shiny because this is your third time on the show, I think. Fantastic. Uh, that's, that's quite the honor. Um, I'm happy to be uh, chatting with you again today. It's you. You are one of those people. If you're not following Mike on online, um, I, I just watch him uh, dive in headfirst into some of these Twitter debates. Um, and for somebody, I'm not usually shy about it, but you just you're like, wow, you're a cliff diver. Um, sometimes on that, and I'm really impressed. So he's your Mike D Kyle on uh, on Twitter and worth following. So. Definitely. Uh, I hope the water isn't too shallow. The real problem isn't the shallowness of the water, but the trolls lurking in it. Uh, the uh, and and for people that you know, one of the, one of our goals, Stephen and my goals on the podcast, is we want to spark great conversations, and so um, we always want to hear back from people um, what what they thought, if they have an opinion. Um, you know, Mike's a friend of the show because he has strong opinions, and so we want to we want people who, to come on and and get, you know feel what you're doing. So if you're not shouting it at the podcast, then we're not doing it right, uh, in my opinion. So that's that's really where we like to go. Mike, you and I sort of talked initially from a framing perspective of the the giant yawning sound um, that I think you know I'm feeling a bit as I'm watching. You know, giant companies get much, much bigger, um, and I, I haven't felt, you know, that, that we've created. That there's a lot of excitement. Um, is, is innovation dead? Uh, I don't think innovation is dead. I think there's always peaks and valleys, and we've seen uh, a lot of peaks with you know tech companies going public, and then some valleys with large acquisitions and. And some of the big data companies like MapR and Cloudera struggling. Mm. So I think it probably it probably evens out a little bit, but I think as a society we tend to focus on the negative versus the positive. Uh, but I think back to your point, I think overall uh, innovation has become more consumed by buzzwords than actual real solutions. You're 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 taking all the wind out of us talking about edge by by doing that, but we'll get there. Um, yeah, why? I mean, what's what's is there is there something that's that's slowing things down? I and actually, to be fair, slowing you know we we go through waves where things stabilize and and then they they move quickly after a stabilization phase. And I think you're right, stabilization is is potentially where we are. Um. Is it, you know, is that, do you feel like that it's just about stabilization or people like figuring out containers? I think we're still in the first inning of cloud computing, to be honest. If you, if you, if you look outside of Silicon Valley and all of the companies here, if you, if you go talk to a bunch of CIOs, they're struggling with how do they move from their, their better bare metal monolithic stacks uh, on-prem or in a colo to leveraging cloud. But now, we've to kind of contradict myself earlier like innovation <laughs> around containers and serverless and other methodologies has expanded so there's more to think about which causes this um paralysis or you've seen my soundbite on twitter a bunch of cultural inertia 
or people just don't know what to do and and how to get started. And I think my first advice is like just get started and, and you know do some POCs or experiments. Um, but I think that's that's the real state we're in is there's a lot of people um, either embarrassed or just don't know how to get started with cloud or virtualization even. And there's probably some opportunities um, even from the big cloud providers to start helping with that. Wow. I, I guess, you know, in, I, I don't usually think of people as, as not understanding some of those basics. Um, and I mean, we're sort of guilty in, on the show of, of trying to dive into the deeper dive right into the deep water to keep my analogy going. Um, but, you know, wow. So, so if, if there's this tremendous well of people just still trying to figure things out, um, that would, that would really argue towards a stabilization. What, what about this sort of trend that I've seen where with like lambdas or containers where people basically say, yeah, you're doing it wrong if you're not doing this. And we, we sort of create this A-B mentality where do, you're either doing it the new way, which is right, or you're doing it the old way, which is wrong. It, could that contribute to some of this? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of dogmatic attitudes uh, around serverless, for sure, uh, and even containers. And then if you start diving into what people understand, they don't understand um, about the statelessness of containers. Like recently, I was, was helping a large company, and they were moving their their on-prem large monolithic stack to cloud. And just by moving from virtual machines to containers, they thought they were getting a performance boost. And I was like, "How are you ensuring that the data in those containers is you know uh, keeps state or is saved?" And they hadn't really thought through that. Uh, and then they had talked about moving to a microservices architecture. Uh, as if it's magic. And I think a lot of those dogmatic attitudes lead people to believe that there is some magic solution like uh, serverless or Lambda will solve all of your problems um, and it'll, it'll also create new ones. So I think you have to step back and you know, as a bunch of us say on Twitter, like uh, start with the why of why you're going to do something and then figure out the proper how technologies to power that. You mean I don't just start with Kubernetes as the answer, and then and then that that solves my my tech problem going forward. Convert everything to Kubernetes and go. Yeah, because it worked for Google, and you know, came out of Google. <laughs> Everybody can be the next Google if you just deploy your application in a Kubernetes uh, cluster. All right, all right. So I'm going to ask you to say the obvious statement, but it's worth saying. Why did it work for Google? Uh, no one saw the years and massive investment that they put into it. In the background. And the fact that they forced all their developers to build for the platform, right? It's... Yeah, exactly. So they converged onto one solution and and said, look, this is how we're going to deploy infrastructure and your applications need to be resilient and work within that construct. But it, at the same time, I mean, I really do feel like in the last two years, um, you know, containerization has a, has exploded as right the way to package applications. Um, and I mean, just the packaging side of containers seem to have like you know sort of obliterated every other way of delivering software. Um, and then Kubernetes is actually let me just stop there before I go go deeper. Is do you, is that 
mirrored your experience and what are you seeing in market? I think around containers specifically, and I've said this for probably at least a year, uh, people keep bolting more and more layers onto a container image that they're no more lightweight or skinny as a VM. And that we've lost Ouch. all, okay. much, if not all of the benefits of containers because people still don't understand um, what composes the container and how it actually gets built. So, I mean, if they're no better than, uh, I mean, you've got the immutability where you're delivering them as a as sort of a fixed image out of a library, but yeah, I mean, if it, what, what, what do we lose by having fat containers? What do we gain if we can get, a, get away from that? I think the first move is always, or typically driven by financial motivation to get away from the uh, VM licensing lock-in and, and exorbitant cost. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but then that cost just gets shifted to uh, technology and understanding, and then some probably pain internally as they figure out, you know, stateful versus stateless containers and how do they provide storage and security around that and kind of revamp their software uh, delivery and assembly line. Right. So that's a whole new way to build your application. So you've got an architectural problem and you've got a build delivery problem, right? I mean, both are beneficial if you get it right, but that's a lot of lift if you're saying most people don't, you know, don't quite get the concept yet. Well, I think you need to start with the application and what you're trying to solve and deliver to your customers with that application and then figure out where containers and or Kubernetes make sense within that architecture. I mean, but I, I always I've, I've maybe this is just the way things are being pitched, but feels like Kubernetes has become sort of this default. If I'm using containers, I'm, I'm using container Kubernetes as the scheduler. Um, I know that's not it's not the only scheduler, but it's it certainly seems to have, have taken over the landscape. Uh, is that a fair? You think that's fair? Yeah, the Kubernetes uh, community has done a great job of them becoming the the Kleenex of <laughs> container orchestration. That was I I was watching something that Rancher did with that they call K3S, which is basically a fork, but uh, very lightweight fork of of Kubernetes and it's conformant with the APIs and the control planes and the schema files, right? All, all that. And so that, that to me starts speaking Kleenex when somebody's, you know, replicating your API um, because it, it does the right thing or people are used to it. That's a pretty good sign that you got it right. Do, do you think it's, do you think we're going to start seeing alternate implementations of Kubernetes? Uh, I hope <laughs> not just because Okay. I don't I don't think that fragmentation helps anyone. I think coming down to standardization um much like you saw with with S3 from Amazon. Like everything now has an S3 compatible API right. for Sure, storage. but those are I would say those are alternate implementations. That's exactly the right we've we've got a standard API, but we've got a, a whole bunch of implementations behind the scenes so it's become a de facto standard, right? Kubernetes could become a de facto standard from an API perspective or a YAML schema perspective, I guess. And, uh, but yet have, you know, different, 
you know, different things going on behind the scenes that we don't see. I mean, for all we know, Amazon, Google, or Microsoft, or one of the other vendors is their own fork. But yeah, I'm, yeah, it's a good point. I'm sure all three have their own fork. <laughs> you can guarantee it. Yeah, I. And then somebody's pounding the table. No, um, that's just the way software at scale is. Everybody, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think Kubernetes, so Kubernetes will probably be used as the same as we use the term cloud. Hmm. So it'll mean a very broad uh, definition, but then when you dig into it, you'll find out what that really means. That is really insightful. I, I, I am seeing people using Kubernetes as a, as a placeholder for hybrid, what they would consider hybrid cloud or multi-cloud platform. From that perspective, right? they're just like, oh, we're going to Kubernetes everywhere um, and, it, and turn it into a verb. And now we're all now, now, now we've crossed every every checkbox, right? Uh, Let's please not turn it into a verb that it's just magic and we'll solve all of our applications. Oh, it's too late for that. that. That that swimmer left the starting blocks. Got to stay with my water analogies. Uh <laughs> I guess that swan is already in the water. I don't know. All right. Um, oh, the swan, uh, swan song. There you go. I'm, 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 I'm I got to up my, uh, my analogies food today. The, uh, <laughs> but, but so let's, I mean, let's, let's pivot from them, then people embedding this stuff into other products, right? Cause that to me has been the mark of, of what hasn't happened with Kubernetes. And even with containers, to an extent, I keep hoping that we're going to start seeing you know, products that are based on Kubernetes as a platform and, and using that as a delivery. I, I keep hearing about people shipping appliances and the edge, you know, the edge conversations we've had have not been Kubernetes. They've been we have a container manager that's not Kubernetes. Um, what's going on? Uh, so I think uh, some of the appliance vendors are trying to use that to probably. Um, stay relevant and continue to uh, increase business or keep their current business. And that's a, a very sexy marketing spin that now, you know, I, I have an appliance that you can have Kubernetes managed for you wherever you want. Um, and then you can either have a true edge or you can deploy it at different points of presence and call it edge, but have your application delivered there. But all managed within that appliance with an embedded Kubernetes. I, but I mean, I guess I mean Kubernetes isn't really. I mean, I'll ask you to put your security hat on for a second, right? Kubernetes isn't really multi-tenant. Containers don't have good security boundaries. If I was going to deliver applications into an edge and edge infrastructure, wouldn't I be better off just using a virtual machine? Uh, I'm not sure that container versus VM give you any different security. Uh, around a perimeterless deployment. Hmm. So I think in either case, you need to bake security testing and construct into the application. And then it's the classic defense in depth. So if you have, if you're doing during your entire software development lifecycle, static code analysis, dynamic, and then application vulnerability testing in a more continuous manner, that's the approach versus thinking about a container being more or less secure than <clears throat> I was gonna say if you if you look at the OWASP top 10 and kind of the the common vulnerabilities there's still the application is the main attack vector 
Uh, and unfortunately, things like SQL injection attacks are still like the top three. Like we haven't gotten better about writing secure code that does I'm input bounds checking. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's it's hard to think of the vulnerabilities like that when you're just trying to get data out of a database. But um, and SQL's powerful. But so, but you said something that that I want to I want to highlight. Um, and we, we've we've talked about this on some. You know, I think we've talked about this in your past in your past visits to the show, um, and I've had some conversations about it, which is the perimeterless uh, security. You want to? Could you def just redefine that for people so so we can talk about it a little bit? Sure. Uh, so if you go back to the classic kind of on-prem deployments where you had a firewall or a set of firewalls in front of a well-defined network perimeter, you thought you were good, uh, and then as now as as public cloud became more prevalent and people were moving even to a, a hybrid or multi-cloud model, that perimeter got more elastic. And like, if you really want to think about security, you have to take a zero trust perimeterless mindset, meaning assume you have no security, how would you secure your application and how do you get continuous insight into uh, attacks and the behavior and usage? Makes a lot of sense. So. It's, it's moving from reactive or passive to proactive and um, more aggressive. And so that's going to drive you to, you know, use end-to-end -end encryption to distribute uh, secure infrastructure, trusted, you know, use TLS and, and use a certificate distribution to make sure that you're talking to trusted people. There's all sort, There are all sorts of aspects to that, um, which makes a lot of sense. In Edge, you know, you, you don't have any any wall around around what you're doing so if you if you really invest in this perimeterless security then yeah the container you're going to distribute is going to be just as safe as if you have the you know a vm to protect your application is that that's the idea yeah and like on just security in general i think authentication gets a lot of airtime and authorization gets very little um, like back when I first met the the team at Conjure, which is now part of CyberArk, we were talking about this concept of machine identity versus this um, users that have logins to the application or, or sysadmins. And that each machine needs to, or service needs to be authorized to talk to another service. And if not, this shouldn't be allowed. So you, you can increase your security there by moving to a finer level of granularity. I I have a we uh, it's funny cuz uh I was doing a little bit of work on our on our stuff today and we hit exactly this I I'm going to use that as an illustration and it should maybe it'll be helpful for the point that you're describing um cuz it's so fresh in my mind so like for the the things that we do with with bare metal physical machines when a machine is working it has a a special use token that uses um authorization to be able to update itself right that's that's what you're describing as a as a service or a machine or an entity that's able to take very restricted actions based on your authorization, not your authentication, right? That's a different, the token does both, but it, that token has limited scope in the system to take actions on its own behalf, on its own data, right? So you have to have that. Um, one of the things that we've done is that there's some shared spaces that you can authorize machines to talk to so they can share data between machines. and that extra level of trust is added into the token that the machine uses or a special token is granted that only has the ability to write into the shared space. Um, 
And then one of the things that we discovered today was that we had not included um, the ability to update secure values in that shared space. So you could write insecure data, but not secure data because they have separate permissions for very good reasons. Um, and that's the type of granular control, Mike, that I think, that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the type of granular control you're talking about where individual things in your system have very discrete capability, you know, rights to make very small changes. And that's very explicitly defined as not, you know, coming in as an admin user, even though I'm a machine. So as we were talking about before the show started, I think we love to repackage things. What we're discussing here is the concept of least, least privileges, which has been around totally for a while. Sense. But people always, people start there, but then when things don't work, like back in the firewall days, like if something wasn't working, you you do an active <laughs> control list entry, allow all, all, and you're like, well, I'll, I'll remove that once things are working. You never remove it, and it's in there. That's the same reason that SQL injection hacks are, are still a thing, right? It's Yeah, that's right. But it's it's it can be frustrating, right? It, to make you know when you put those in, like the thing I hit today, it's you know I we actually had to run a whole version of the server to fix that that bug, and so it's not you know people are going to have to upgrade if they hit this issue. Um, it'd be so much easier to just generate <laughs> permissions and use, but it's not a good idea. Software development is hard, and adding security in properly makes it even more so. And yeah. you know. Developers are incentivized by delivering features they get paid for, and unfortunately, security is rarely one of them. No, it's it's really not. Um, I keep hoping that we're going to get to that model, and it, it feels like the the horses get further and further out of the barn in that case. Um, and the you know, do you think? Boy, I'm going to ping. I'm ping ponging around. I actually want to stay on edge a little bit because, right, to me, this security from an edge infrastructure perspective. Um, is is going to be so hard because of the lack of the perimeter list case. And then the example we were just giving, inside of your own app, it's it's almost manageable. But you know, the, a lot of the edge cases that we've brought up in the show have been things where you're talking uh, edge to you know along the edge, different vendors or different apps, different services are communicating with each other and not going all the way back into a centralized infrastructure. And so that concept of least privilege is going to have to be managed between two services that don't have the same code authors or the same vendors. Uh, that's spot on. I think the challenge with Edge is you you have no very little or no security context, and you have to be able to process data and make decisions very quickly. And any security checking is going to add latency to that and will probably be ripped out if thought that it's affecting performance. That's true. So, so, but I mean, you could then in those cases, you could do sidecar type monitoring or you could, I mean, this is where to me, the promise of containers is always interesting. You could actually have a service where the security, you know, once the a relationship is established in a network, you could actually just monitor that nothing's going wrong and, and back out of the, the control loop altogether. Um, but I haven't seen people building that like a little bit, maybe. Back to my comment about obese containers, I think you have to start there at the edge and make sure that the container or set of containers powering whatever edge solution only has the necessary components and libraries to reduce the attack vectors. 
But then, but now you're talking about running in constrained environments. I guess that's all. That's better to have a lightweight container where you're not shipping around. You know, a big OS is that going to create a problem if somebody's like, oh, I've you know this this edge environment is running. You know, uh, I'm not exactly sure what what you what you strip out. I mean, I know it's going to get bloated if you then need a full Debian or a full CentOS um, OS inside your container to make it work. Um, is this really just about you know knowing what you don't need in a container? I think it's fully understanding the application and what it needs, and then building the container based upon that, and then having a, a very quick build pipeline to update it. Okay, that makes sense. What about on the storage side? I mean, in, in the cases you're describing, those aren't persistent volume containers; they're they're stateless containers. What do you do then to connect it back into some persistent data on, on the backside? And I know that's like the million dollar question because nobody's figured it out. So <laughs> I know I know that you're waiting to engrave your tablets and, and come and come down uh, from the mount. But um... <laughs> I think much like security context, you have to have data context and be able to first extract the data signal from the noise to be able to put it down or send it down to the next layer uh, where it either gets persisted or, or filtered down wow. more. Uh, that, from a trust perspective, the thing, the thing that I, I, and the reason I love asking a question like that is because when I think about challenges that we're facing in the edge, right, you and I are, are doing a good job laying out how hard it's going to be just to run a trusted container system. It's lightweight. Um, in in a resource restricted <laughs> perimeter environment, and we haven't even broached what it's really going to take to secure the storage for that, or you know, make sure the the networking topologies are are secure. Oh, it feels like Edge is further away than 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 you know, sort of the marketing would lead you to believe. Well, I think innovation always trails marketing. <laughs> it's easier to talk about. Uh, future solutions than solve or deliver them. So I think, you know, going back to how we started the show and talking about peaks and valleys of innovation, uh, I think we'll start going up a peak of, you know, new, new technologies and companies, startups that are focused on these core problems. I think you're right. I think one of the, one of the things that maybe is driving us to feel like there isn't a lot of new innovation is that we've gotten so used to the, the marketing of of what this is, or or maybe we've just people have, have given up on marketing it like that, where it's you know the this this drumbeat of uh inflated expectations on new technologies is is maybe died off a little bit. I mean maybe we just we 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 hit peak blockchain and, and never recovered. I think we've also hit peak AI and people are going to say that AI will solve this implicitly and we're, and we're done. Uh, yeah, that's, I, and, and saying cloud and DevOps are going to fix all problems too. It's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma because I, I mean, I don't know how people, you know, find what, you know, something that I, that's really going to solve their problems anymore. It seems like there's so much clutter. And we struggle with that as a as a company. So. Yeah, there's there's clutter and abstraction, so you have to peel back 
or down through the abstraction layers to figure out what the core solution to start with is. Yeah, the the I guess one of the things that you know it, to and some of it's based on where what what we do every day, but some of the things that makes me sad is the throw out you know burn burn the bridges approach to some of these technologies, right? You you had, you and I had talked a little bit about um, you know migrations and and you know bringing bringing apps over. I guess there's a part of me that feels like um, we don't spend a lot of time building the bridges. We spend a lot of time burning them down or proverbially burning them down. Yeah, I think that's a good a good analogy and probably what happens more often than not. Yeah. I, it, the funny thing to me is that that feels like it slows us down ultimately um, by, you know, hopping, lily padding from, you know, the new, new thing to the new, new, newer thing isn't, isn't, you know, keeping the IT isn't isn't letting us march at a steady pace. We're sort of lurching back and forth, um, and in some cases, that that lurch isn't isn't to the right thing, or it doesn't it doesn't fix the security problems. We're like, ah, it's too hard to fix it. Burn it. Well, I think the internal coups that happen within an org about migration and then you know doing DevOps and moving to microservices. Uh, the understanding of what that means is eventually consistent within that org, and it takes a while for everybody to wrap their heads around it. And I think we we often forget about that lag, and then projects or migrations are less successful than they could be. I see that with um, what we call the reorg half life, <laughs> which. It, which this is this is from a, from me from a selling cycles perspective, um, but from a project implementation perspective, every, you know most most organizations that we interact with in the enterprise have a six to nine month reorg cycle, and if you can't complete within the reorg half life, um, you are in big trouble, right? You're going to lose a champion, you're going to lose management budget, people just start, you know you're you're not done yet, you know, and, and stop before you're actually you're done. Um, and a lot of these initiatives don't, you know, they, they aren't day zero uh, positive ROIs. They're they're multi-year benefits. Completely. Wow. <laughs> well, I think I think we need to. This is a we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, so I, I think we're we're both <laughs> both ready for the happy hour to kick in. You have do you have something positive <laughs> to to wrap us out on? Some some, some glowing optimistic, exciting uh, thing that people should be looking for as a consequence of this conversation? I think if you if you flip over everything we talked about, there's a massive amount of opportunity out there for innovators to solve these challenges. I strongly agree. Strongly agree with that. So uh, if you're one of those people who's trying to solve, solve one of these problems, especially if you're doing the hard, dirty ones, um, where it's you know, there's a lot of moving parts. We want to hear about, hear you on the show. Um, so please, please take some time and check us out. Mike, thank you very much. I love these conversations. Thanks for having me, Rob.